Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. And we've been in this series, Unfinished, and we've been looking at the life and ministry of the early church, and we've seen the ups and downs of what God has been doing in the life of the church, and we've now centered in, as we started last week, on this character, this individual, Stephen. Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he's not from Jerusalem, but he's a Greek-speaking Jew who was selected with six other men to be seven guys who would oversee uh, the delivering of food and ministering to the widows of this early church. And so he has been spoken about, and last week we learned that this Stephen was a man of great faith, a man filled with the Spirit, a man of which the Bible says nothing bad about. And in chapter 7, we begin to see that what is taking place is, is at the end of chapter 6, people are mad at him because Stephen has gone back to his old synagogue. He's come to know Christ, and he's walked with Christ for about a year, and now he's gone back to his old neighborhood, to his old stomping ground, uh, to his old place of worship, and instead of joining them, he's now come and he's told them that Jesus Christ, the very man that the, the synagogue hated, was now Stephen's Lord and Savior. And because of that, it creates an uproar. Because of this, even though he had a face that shone like an angel and had a countenance to him that seemingly everybody would like, his old friends and old acquaintances began to hate him. In fact, they hated him so much and unable to fight against him, they brought uh, unfaithful and, and lying men to bring up stories about him to try to insinuate that he had done something wrong. As a result of that, we are told, he's brought before uh, the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leaders of the day. And he's questioned about what he believed and what he was saying. And once again, we see a broken record. The people of God preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. First, they're threatened. And then they go and they preach and proclaim Christ again. And not only are they threatened, but they're beaten. And then they go about again and they preach and proclaim the name of Christ. And they are threatened and they are beaten and now they're imprisoned. And they go out again and they preach and proclaim about the name of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to learn today is that the unbelieving world at times will become so angry by our message that they will not only threaten, they will not only mock or beat, they will not only do all those things and maybe even imprison us, but what we're going to learn today is what we see the first time in the New Testament. A disciple of Jesus Christ stands and boldly proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And he is cut down. We're going to be told that he's going to be taken outside of the city and he would be stoned. He would be killed because of his message about Jesus Christ. Now sadly, in our world today, he would not be the last. Thousands, maybe even millions of people, present day Stevens, have gone and spoken the good news of Jesus Christ. While we are so advanced and, and so filled with technology in our day, it is amazing that people still oppose the gospel. Our news is filled with ISIS fighters who take present-day Stevens along uh, lake shores or seashores, have them kneel down, and sadly, grossly, because they will not give up their faith, they behead them and put them to death. 
We have learned the story of thousands upon thousands of Christians in northern Iraq and Syria who have fled and some of the horrific stories of radical Islam that has done anything in its power, the most grotesque and the most horrific acts done to humanity. For what reason? Because men and women, followers of Jesus Christ, will not bow the knee to Allah. We live in a world and in a day where present day Stevens are living and dying for their faith. And it's a reminder for us today, as it was in the book of Acts, that the life of a Christian is not simply to do something that costs us nothing, but in fact what God requires and what God demands of us is that we would be willing to stand We would be willing to speak, and if we have to, that we would be willing to sacrifice our lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. And it begs the question this morning of your pastor, it begs the question this morning of everyone who comes into this place, am I willing to do what Stephen did? Am I willing to do it? And notice what we'll see in our text this morning. He doesn't do it kicking and screaming, but he does it with great peace in his heart, forgiving his enemies and loving them as they hated him and as they killed him. This morning we come to a passage that shows us the very best of Christianity. The very best of what it means to be a Christ follower. And this morning what we are going to see is the story of what changes lives. Before us, I will tell you right now, is one of the longest, it is the longest sermon in all of the book of Acts. And we only get the highlights. You see, the book of Acts should be entitled, The Book of Sermons. There are 15 different sermons preached in Luke's record of the book of Acts. And today we come to the longest one. What gets Stephen killed? Is it his good looks? Is it what he was wearing? Is it the football team he rooted for? No. It was who he believed in and who he spoke about that killed him that day. What we see this morning is what I would like to call gospel-centered preaching. A dangerous venture in our day as it was in Stephen's. Well, I want to address all that's in the text. For time's sake, I'm not going to read all of what takes place, so let's just highlight the first 50 verses very quickly for you this morning. Stephen is going to give uh, the reason why he preaches, the reason why he has left the synagogue and followed Jesus Christ. He gives the history of humanity and, quite frankly, the history of Israel as a nation. He's going to talk about Abraham and Abraham's journey from Mesopotamia to Israel. He's going to talk about Joseph and the mistreatment that Joseph experienced from his brothers. He's going to speak about Moses being the deliverer of his people and how Moses was rejected even though he was the one to deliver them from the hands of Pharaoh and to draw them to the promised land. He's going to talk about temples. He's going to talk about the temple that was with the children of Israel in the time of wandering. He's going to talk about Solomon's magnificent temple. He's going to talk about the temple that was present in Jerusalem that day, the temple of Herod. And why those things aren't as important as a vibrant and healthy relationship and personal walk with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to tell them as we move to uh, verse 51 
that the men that he was talking to were just like the men of old. That they were stiff-necked people. They were rebellious. Notice in verse 51, and we'll read to 8.3, he says this, You stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in your heart and, and ears. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or died. And Paul, or sorry, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that great day a persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. One of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture is before us. One of the greatest messages ever preached by anyone outside of Jesus Christ himself. What Stephen gives us is a model of preaching and a model for living this morning. There's a word for me as your preacher. There's a word for you as the listener and responder to that gift of grace that God has given You see, this morning, we learn about a man who died for what he preached. And preaching is an important part of the church. It's an important part of the Christian worship service. It's an important part of our church. And I hope that one of the reasons why you're here is because uh, not only myself, but of the men who have filled this pulpit have been men who have been faithful to the gospel message. But sadly in our world today, while preaching is still something that's done in churches all over the United States, the Apostle Paul tells us that many will turn away from sound preaching and go to things that will itch uh, their, or tickle their ears, their itching ears. It'll make them feel good. And there's a lot of preaching out there because not all preaching is equal. We are called to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to call people from their sin and rebellion and to follow Jesus in faith and repentance. But today, as people gather in churches all over our fine country, people will hear sermons that are anything but 
the gospel. Let me help you out. Write these down even before I get to my outline. What are some types of preaching that are not gospel-centered preaching? Not what we see in Stephen's message. Well, first of all, I want to talk about politic-centered preaching. Politic-centered preaching. The bulk of this preaching focuses in on current events. You, You don't need your Bible. You need your newspaper or news feed. It's about what's going on in Washington, not what's going on in our hearts. As we enter into the Christmas season, politics-centered preaching talks about the battle for Christmas and whether we should say Merry Christmas or not, or whether there should be a nativity scene in the town square or not, or who we should vote for, or how Washington is turning or stemming the tide. Many of these sermons have the idea for us to stand up and take back America. While that may rile up a group of people, it is not the gospel. While it may fire up a political base, it will not do anything for our walks with Jesus Christ. It is politics-centered preaching. The second one that I see is what I call advice-centered preaching, and this is all over the place. And so you go to churches, and even evangelical churches, and you go, and the, the pastor gets up, and instead of thundering, thus saith the Lord, what the pastor does is he puts on a sweater, and he puts on his best Dr. Phil acts. And he tells people how to be better spouses and be better parents and be better family members and, and, and how to do better at work and how to not have less, so much stress and, and how to live a, a happier and fuller life apart from Jesus Christ. You see, this advice is good and it's helpful, but it renders us down or it, it just Christianizes, if you will, the story of Charles Dickens' Scrooge. Let's be a little nicer. Let's show a little more Christmas spirit. Uh, Let's uh, say kind things to one another. It's not the gospel changing our heart. It's us just fixing a couple things. It tells us that the gospel is chicken soup for our soul and not the knife that cuts us bone and marrow and shows us our sin and our need for Jesus Christ. Advice-centered preaching is fun and it is helpful, but it is not the gospel. The next one that we see is what I call evangelism-centered preaching. And this seems to sound great because evangelism, isn't that the gospel? But what the problem is with evangelism preaching, if we always render ourselves back down to a salvation uh, presentation, then what we tell the world and what we tell the church is that once you come to know Jesus Christ, you don't need the gospel anymore. That the gospel is the key or the start or the foundation to the Christian life. But once you get the gospel, you have no need for it anymore. And there are many churches that will just pound and pound and pound our need for Jesus in that first step of conversion. But notice that the gospel is not just the key to eternal life, but it is the key to everyday life. We need the gospel in every aspect of our lives. Even the most mature and longest serving Christian in our midst is one who needs the gospel each and every week, each and every day, so that they can walk upright and holy for the glory of God. There's evangelism-centered preaching. Finally, there's what I call virtue-centered preaching. Virtue-centered preaching really rolls off the tongue. It really is dynamic because you go to churches and you will hear uh, titles like Dare to be a Daniel. Or you'll study the book of of, uh, 
uh, or the story of uh, King David who fights giants like Goliath. And we learn what it means to be a Daniel and what it means to fight the giants in our life like David or build our leadership skills like Nehemiah. And these take Old Testament stories especially and they moralize them. And there are these ideas or ideals of how we can live better or how we can rise above some of our own dysfunctions and struggles. But remember that while the Old Testament teaches us life lessons, the Old Testament points in every syllable and with every punctuation that Jesus Christ is the coming Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, not all preaching is made equal. And Stephen reminds us this morning that if preaching is going to be gospel-centered, it must be scripture-saturated. It must find itself digging the depths of who God is and His character. It needs to tell us who we are as people and how we are flawed and broken as sinners in need of a Savior. Stephen nails this every step of the way. So if you ever find yourself away from this church, if you ever find yourself evaluating this church, if you ever find yourself, God forbid, replacing me as the primary teacher here, ask the question, am I hearing gospel-centered preaching? And expect, listen, Village Bible Church, accept nothing else as equal. Amen? So let's look at Stephen's message this morning. What a model. What a model preacher, what a model Christian. And what Stephen does, and again, we don't have all the time to work through it, but I want you to notice this morning that there are five things that I see that show me that Stephen's message is gospel-centered. First of all, let's look at each of them very quickly. First of all, gospel-centered preaching commemorates God's record of grace. It commemorates God's record of grace of grace. Stephen starts out his sermon with the call of Abraham. Notice in verses 2 through 8. Acts chapter 7 verses 2 through 8. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go from your land and from your kindred and go into a land that I will show you. And then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there to this land in which you are now living. Let's stop there. Why does he begin with Abraham? Why does he begin telling us what what we have already learned in Genesis? Well, he goes on and he says, okay, Abraham heard from God in Mesopotamia. And then he says, okay, now Joseph... Joseph, later on in the text, notice he says, Joseph in verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And then he goes on and he says, later in the text, in verse 23, that Moses was a man who was raised up by God himself, verses 17 through 22, that God raised him up and God was with him, whether he was in Egypt or whether he was in Midian later on. Now what is God trying to tell us? What is Stephen trying to tell us with all of this? It's a simple truth. That God loves his people. That God is gracious with his people. Not a certain kind of people. 
Nor does he sit in a certain place. But God loves and pours out his blessing on all kinds of people, different kinds of people like Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, all of them having different backgrounds and different family lives and different circumstances, living in different times, all of them being called from different places. You see, God's record of grace goes to all people in all places, but I want you to notice as well, it's not based on who they are. Some of these men were, prosper- uh, were prosperous, still others found themselves at times in great poverty. And God's love was shown to them. The Old Testament is a record of God's loving grace to an undeserving people. And that's true for us this morning. The reason why it is good for a church to be all in is because it reminds us of the infinite and amazing grace that God has shown us as his people. Let us never forget where God found us in our sin and brokenness and how far he's brought us because of the work of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He loves every one of us. And because of it, he's changed us. Now, notice this would have irritated the Sanhedrin at the time. But what Stephen says, in essence, is where does this love happen? Well, notice the love that takes place is everywhere but Israel. In the early part of the text, he says, Abraham experienced the love of God in Mesopotamia. That's Iraq. That's where Abraham first experiences God. And then he says, how about Joseph? Joseph experiences the grace of God, not in Israel, not in Palestine, but in Egypt. And then he says of Moses, Moses experiences God's grace in the burning bush when God speaks to Moses, not in the country land of Judea, but in Midian. Midian is modern day Saudi Arabia. I want you to know right now, Stephen says God's presence is being felt, Sanhedrin, not just here in Israel where you think you've got it all, but it's being shown and it's being experienced in the far-flung places of the world. And he says, with our enemies, Egypt, Midian, and Babylon. The enemies of God are experiencing the grace of God and coming to know who God is because God meets people in all places and in all times and shows his love to them. God loves and graces his people. And God wants you to know this morning, you who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, that God loves you. He loved you so much, he sent his son to die on your behalf so that you might have eternal life. Gospel-centered preaching reminds us and it commemorates God's record of grace to us. Number two, gospel-centered preaching challenges man-made religion. The second thing that Stephen's sermon addresses is that the priest had made in Stephen's time part and parcel of the life and obedience to God was rules and regulations. What they had done is made following God very, very difficult. Let us never forget this. Jesus, who was perfect, 
couldn't fulfill all their laws, couldn't keep all of their commandments. Why? They weren't from God, but they were bogus commandments that made at times little to no sense as to why they would do it. And so there were heirs to Judaism that that Stephen wants to challenge. I'll write these down. There are three heirs of first century Judaism. They were the heir or the idol of land, the heir or idol of liturgy, and the heir and idol of the law of Moses. Land, liturgy, and law. In verse 6.14, we are told that Stephen was being condemned for blaspheming God, supposedly, by changing customs of Moses. They're angry about it. And, and they're beginning to ask the question, what do we do with a blasphemer? Well, what is he blaspheming? He's preaching and proclaiming Christ. He's preaching and proclaiming the goodness of God to people. Well, he was speaking bad about the land. How dare you, Stephen, say that God is showing his grace and mercy to foreign lands? He's not, they would say. The only thing that God is worried about is the nation of Israel. The only thing that God loves or cares in our world is the land that we have, the land that was promised to us, that promised land, but was supposed to be a gift What was supposed to be a blessing became an idol. It became a god. It began to become something where uh, the Israelites could use what they thought was God's mandate as a way to harm and hurt those around them. For us as Americans, we have been greatly blessed by God. But this land theology can hurt us. Because we can believe that we are the only nation God loves. We are the only nation that God has blessed. That we are experiencing favor beyond anything that the world has ever seen. That we are, in fact, the greatest nation in all of the world. Well, I'm here to tell you a couple things. While we are a wonderful and a great nation, God loves the United States just like he loves every other nation in the world. And God is blessing, whether seen or unseen. And God is moving in nations in ways that we would never know. And if we allow our patriotism to uh, move beyond our theology, then we may find ourselves in a bit of trouble. This land theology was causing them issues. Number two, their liturgy was a problem. Their liturgy was a problem. Notice in, in verses 44 through 50 of our text, Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers turn, in turn brought it with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God who found uh, uh, and, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, what they had begun to think was that they had a place where God resided. And they had built it with their own hands, and they had made it an idol. 
And they had told people who could come and who couldn't come into that temple. And they said only God resided here. God didn't reside other places. He was only here. And the problem was while the temple was given by God again to be a blessing to the nation of Israel, they had made an idol of it. And what Stephen reminds the people was at one time, before it was filled with gold and all precious metals, the temple of God was a tent that followed the people of God. And God's presence was there. And God's presence was there when Solomon built his temple. And God's presence was there when Herod's temple was built. But God's presence isn't consigned to a certain building or a certain place. God's presence is found, Stephen says, in the hearts of you and I. Because we are now indwelled by the living Holy Spirit. And no longer do we need to have a place that we say is holy. But because of the working of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are made holy. And that we are the vessel, we are the temple of the living God. And so he goes with us. Wherever we may find ourselves, we are the new temple. That is why we no longer need a place called a temple where we go and we give sacrifices to the Lord because Jesus Christ has done it once and for all and now by his spirit indwells each and every child of God. The final error that we see of man-made religion that they had was the law. Was the law. They had made the law something it was not supposed to be. What was supposed to help protect and guide the people of God now became the litmus test by which man received the grace of God. By which man could earn their salvation. If they just did enough, if they just prayed enough, if they just uh, did uh, enough giving, then God would be happy with them and give them eternal life. But the law was never to be that. You see, whether it was the land or the liturgy or the law, all of these things were God's gift to us so that we might experience blessing in Him. And instead of worshiping Him and thanking Him, we took these things and we made them gods. And Stephen's words to us aren't so much people in Sugar Grove, year 2017. Do you struggle with a land theology? Do you struggle with a liturgy issue or a law issue? Those aren't the issues we deal with. Brothers and sisters, we take other noble things, other gifts from God, and we elevate them slowly and surely up, and we make them idols in and of themselves. Let me remind you again, why is an all-in so important? Because it reminds us that the gifts under the Christmas tree, while they may be fun to give and fun to share and even funner to receive, that Jesus is the real gift. That the advancement of the gospel is our real goal and focus. That nothing in this world, as great and as wonderful as it may be, can ever substitute the work of Christ and the gift of Christ this Christmas. Man-made religion does what Martin Luther says. We allow the human heart to become a factory making idols each and every day. Stephen reminds us that man-made religion is challenged and shut down by the gospel. Notice number three. Gospel-centered preaching calls out man's rebellion. It calls out man's rebellion. 
In Stephen's history, we see a variety of people. Abraham, Joseph, Moses. And within each of these, he then brings up later in the text, Jesus Christ. In verse 51 and 52. And he says, with each and every one of these, you rejected. You have been a rejecting people all of time. And that's true. What Stephen is articulating is from uh, the fall, there hasn't been a single day, listen, there has not been a single day where human beings have not rejected God for their own desires. Instead of turning to God and his plans and purposes, man each and every day turns from God and says, God, I can do it better myself. And yet these people said, we love the patriarchs, we love the prophets. And notice what Stephen says. He says, as awesome as Joseph was, he was loved by his father. He was a good son, an obedient son. The patriarchs wanted him dead. They recognized God's measure, God's uh, measure of grace was upon him. They saw God in him allowing Joseph to experience things that he hadn't, that they hadn't. And instead of enjoying some of the grace that Joseph would bring the family, they put him on a trading post to be trafficked to Egypt. They wanted him dead. And then Moses, how could we say a bad thing about Moses? Stephen reminds them, and this is even more telling. Notice in the text where he talks about Moses. Notice in, uh, uh, let's see here, verse uh, 17. The promise of, of Abraham has drawn near. Joseph has served well. And notice verse 20. At this time Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's home. When they were exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. See, Moses was an Israelite. And even though he had been adopted because the firstborn babies were being killed in Egypt... Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, we know the story, in the Nile River, and she adopts him as her own, but at some point, Moses knows that he's an Israelite, and he sees his people being beaten and held in bondage. And notice what Moses does. Knowing that it was time to visit his brothers and the children of Israel, and seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, that is Moses, that his brothers the Israelites would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Here's what Stephen says. God has given a deliverer to Israel. And it is the son of Pharaoh. What greater uh, deliverer could there have been? And what do they do? They're like, we don't want you. Get out of here. 
Yeah, you helped one of our own and you saved one of our own's lives, but we don't want to follow you. We're going to reject you. And notice later on in the text, it says after 40 years, in verse 34, Moses comes after experiencing the holy ground around the burning bush, says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. God sends Moses to Egypt, go deliver your people, and notice what the Egyptians do. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel, appeared to him in a bush. And notice what takes place. They reject him again. He leads them out of the promised land. And they reject him again. They murmur and grumble. And what he's telling, what Stephen is telling us, is reminding us that no matter who God has sent to be the proclaimer of the message, the unbelieving world rejects, rejects, rejects. Notice why in verse 51, because they are a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in their heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Notice the question he asks, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You did all of them. Every one of them, that's why we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, because every time he opened his mouth, they beat him up. They rejected and they rejected, and it's one thing to reject a prophet. But let us remember that a text tells us that they rejected Jesus, the righteous one, in verse 52, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. The unbelieving world, listen, rejects. And there are some today who are rejecting the very message that I'm preaching. Life of humankind in their sin will reject and will rebel against the preaching of God's word every time. We need the spirit of God to do a mighty work, a miracle in our lives. Notice it causes various reactions or results. Various reactions... Stephen preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. The same gospel that Peter did that brought 3,000 people into glory. He preaches the same gospel that, gospel that Philip is going to preach in chapter 8 that sees myriads of Samaritans come to know Jesus. And where we are told by Luke, an Ethiopian eunuch comes to know Christ. In fact, Luke says that when the gospel is preached by Philip, it brings joy to the city. But when uh, Stephen preaches it, no joy is found. They are enraged, it says. They're gnashing or they're grinding their teeth. Well, what does that look like? Some of you remember uh, the governor uh, some years ago invited your pastor to go and pray in a special session of uh, the General Assembly in, in Springfield. And before I went up to preach, or preach, to pray, I should have preached, to pray... The speaker of the house said to me, I see you're an evangelical pastor. I just want to make things abundantly clear. I'm a Jewish uh, uh, assemblyman, and I think it is wrong for you to share the name of Jesus in your prayer. It is offensive to me. And I said, well, that's too bad. Your boss, the governor, invited me, knowing who I was and what I stand for, I'm sorry, but I will preach and I will pray and I will proclaim the name of Jesus when I pray. 
And as he stood behind me, many of you were watching the, uh, the video recording of it, and you could audibly hear a man grumbling while I was praying. He was gnashing, he was grumbling, and he was gnawing at his teeth. Why? Because he hated the very mention of Jesus. I look back at the written prayer that I had. Jesus' name was shared 27 times. When the name of Jesus is proclaimed, some will get angry. Some will pick up stones. Some will inflict harm on us. And in some times and in some moments, and that we'll be faithful to it, sometimes we are put to death. And Stephen, with great faithfulness, allowed himself to be put to death, to die for the gospel. But I want you to notice the final change that can take place is that it changes lives. Notice Saul, and we'll get to this later, this Saul who approved of the execution, this Saul who held everybody's jackets, this Saul who would go ravaging the church, would watch what would take place in Stephen's message and life, and one day on the road to Damascus, which we'll learn in Acts chapter 9 at the beginning of the new year, he will bow the knee to Jesus. Because the gospel changes lives. The gospel finally, and I need to close, the gospel celebrates when people respond in faith. We are told that as Stephen is being pelted with stones and rocks, he looks to heaven and he sees a glorious picture. He sees heaven and he sees glory and he sees Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus seated, as the New Testament says over and over again, seated at the right hand of the Father, as we articulate in our creed, seated at the Father's right hand. But he is standing. And the question is, why is he standing? And here's the the scholarly answer that I have. I don't know. And if anybody tells you, they don't know. But here's what I can uh, imagine. Why did people stand in the first century? Why do we stand today? To honor those who have done something well. I imagine, and I probably am wrong, but just go with me on this, that when Jesus Christ stood, he stood to say, Stephen, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want you to know this morning that when we boldly stand for Jesus, when we boldly proclaim for Jesus, whether he's sitting or whether he's standing, I can tell you this, Jesus and the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us are celebrating our faithfulness and our boldness and our courage. And that should spur us on to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in the week to come. Are we preaching gospel-centered sermons? That's the first question. But even more important, as I close, are we living gospel-centered sermons? I found this poem that I think closes things out well. That reminds us it wasn't just Stephen's oratory skills that made this possible. But it was the life that he lived. Here's what the poem says, and I'll close. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely point the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples are always clear. And the best of all the preachers 
are the men who live their creeds. But to see a good put in action is what everybody needs. There's a word for your preacher this morning to continue, and I pray, to always preach gospel-centered sermons. But there's a, an application for each of us to live this out in the comings and goings of our life, whether in the public sector or in our private lives, that we would live like Stephen and preach like Stephen and one day, like Stephen, be celebrated for the good work we've done.